Hey, you're listening to the Upper Room Podcast. To learn more about Upper Room, please visit URDallas.com. recognize him so I met him um, last month I met him we were uh, at an event uh, Sean Bowles has uh, a, a network of pastors and ministers that gather once a year it's called the love coalition and the reason I have been uh, uh, we had gone previous years and 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 this year we went uh, it was an abbreviated time for us but in the backyard in Sean's backyard I met Rabbi Jason and I was looking at him and I was like man I know I know you where do I know you from and I realized I knew him from a cover. He's on a cover of a book that Larissa's been reading uh, that he co-wrote with Kathy Lee Gifford. And um, what, what is it? I forgot the name of it. <laughs> the Rock, the Road, and the Rabbi. The Rock, the Road, and the Rabbi. That is it. I haven't read it yet, but you've read it. And, uh, and so I just recognized on this book, and I was like, you know Kathy Lee Gifford? And Kathy Lee is a dear friend of Drew Hammer's, who's a dear friend of Larissa and I, and comes to the upper room. And so we just started conversing and talking, and he was sharing... Uh, his heart for the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew culture specifically, and just finding Jesus in that. And the, the, the short time that I've known him and the conversations that we've had, I've just had so many ahas. <laughs> I was like, I'm just listening to you. I'm like, oh, I never knew that was there. I never knew that was there. And since it's Christmas season, um, there's a lot of ahas uh, that our Messiah was born into a Jewish culture. He was born to be uh, a savior first to the Jews, then the Gentiles. And I just think that we as a people have a lot to learn uh, from rabbis like Jason. And so I want you to give him a good, warm, honoring welcome from the upper room. Love you both. Shalom. Can you say shalom? Shalom. Do I have to say shalom all y'all? (laughs) <laughs> I lived in the South for a little bit, and I learned if I say you guys, that's not good. So I learned all y'all. <laughs> I'm so excited, man. I, you guys are so blessed. And wasn't the worship amazing? Come on, which, the house that you're building here, the Lord is showing up. And God put something on my heart for you, but I'll wait a few minutes to share that. As, uh, as before I begin to share with you, and it says again, such an honor to be here with you, wasn't the presence of God so strong here this evening? Like the Lord was in our midst. So good. And I just want to share with you a little bit about myself since it's the first time visiting with you. A little bit about my background as we get to know each other. Uh, I grew up in the Holy Land, New Jersey, New York area, where there were more Jews than in Jerusalem. I grew up in a Jewish family, had lost most of my family during the Holocaust. So being Jewish was really important, really significant. Went to Hebrew school as a child, had my bar mitzvah, and at the, age of, at the age of 13, although being Jewish was important, really I became passionate about basketball, and I wound up becoming from being the worst basketball player on my team, shooting at the wrong hoop, to one of the better basketball players on my team. And when I got into high school, my dream was to play college basketball, but the JV uh, football, the, the JV basketball coach was the varsity football coach, and he said, Jason, if you don't play basketball, I'm going to bench you from, if you don't play football, I'm going to bench you from playing basketball, and that's exactly what he did. 
And I wound up getting kicked off the basketball team after he dogged me in practice for a couple years, threw a basketball at his head, not a good idea, and that ended my basketball career. And in my infinite wisdom, I decided that I needed some new friends, so I started to hang out with the high school DJ and drug dealer, got into all sorts of problems, that's a whole nother story, wound up dropping out of high school, getting in trouble, became, became a DJ of hip hop and house music, and the next thing I know is working in a large recording studio in New York City with a lot of famous hip hop artists, and I looked at the lives of all these famous people around me, and I said to myself, there has to be more to life than just this. They had fame and fortune, but I saw that there was something missing. I saw how unhappy they were. And so I began a spiritual journey, started to study with my rabbi at the synagogue, but was looking for real encounter, real connection. So I started to study martial arts and Eastern philosophy and religion, and I would meditate for hours a day like, oh, legs crossed. Used to be able to wrap my legs around my head, crazy yoga positions. And in the midst of one day meditating, which I would do for hours a day, all of a sudden, my soul began to vibrate. It came out of my body. I could see my body there. I was above it by the ceiling. I go through the roof, through the clouds, and the next thing I know, I am standing in heaven, and I, and, and I see this great king, this great melech, Ramvani saw high and lifted up, and this glorious white light is emanating from him, and it begins to pulsate through every cell in my body, begins to come alive and shake under the power of heaven. And let me just tell you something. This world is a carbon copy of what is we are going to experience when we see the Lord face to face. You feel on every level of being in heaven. And I didn't know, and I didn't know, and I looked at this king, and no one needed to tell me who it was. I knew who it was. It was Yeshua. It was Jesus. That's his Hebrew name. Can you say Yeshua? It was Jesus. And I didn't know anything about Jesus, but I knew this was him. And the bottom line is he told me I was called to serve him. And the next thing I know is back in my body, still shaking under the power of heaven, shaking uncontrollably, and I start running around saying, I'm called to serve him. My mom's like, you're called to serve who? Jesus? What is this? We're Jewish. <laughs> my, ne my best friend John comes to faith. He says, Jason, I found the truth. That's Jesus is Lord and Savior, but if you don't believe in him, there's going to be this big beast and the end times are going to eat people who don't believe. I just said, I don't know what they put in your hookah, but this isn't for me. <laughs> I wound up having another encounter coming out of an ashram, a yoga, yoga place in New York City where I come out the door and this woman comes up to me and she looks at me and she says, do you think truth is clear, deep, and absolute? Now the front of my shirt said truth, the back of my shirt said clear, deep, and absolute, but she couldn't read the back of my shirt because I had just come out the door facing the street and the next thing I know, everything dissolves around me and it's like everything in New York, the noise, everything, it disappears and, she be and I'm totally fixated on her and she begins to share the gospel with me, and the next thing I know, I snap out of it, and she's gone. There's no one there. Then my friend John calls me back on the telephone. 
He, he started to attend a messianic congregation with Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. Maybe some of you have heard of him, the Harbinger. So he calls me on the phone. He says, Jason, you went to Hebrew school. You're a nice Jewish kid. Do you think you could tell the difference between the Old and the New Testament? And I said, sure. So he read me this passage about this guy who's going to die on the cross. He said, John, easy, New Testament. He said, let me read you another passage. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. He said, Jason, old or new? I said, obviously, it's talking about Jesus. It must be the New Testament. He said, no, that's Isaiah 53, the Jewish prophet speaking over 700 years before the Messiah ever walked the face of the earth. And I began to be provoked to jealousy because here is my friend who wasn't even Jewish, and he knew more about the promises and the prophecies of the Messiah than I did. And so I agree to go with him to this messianic congregation. At the end of the evening, they dim the lights and play the piano and pray. I figure I need all the help I can get, so I pray. They said, if you prayed this prayer for the first time, raise your hand. I raised my hand. They said, if you raise your hand, please stand up. You've just been born again. Now, I, I, I don't know what it means to be born again, but I knew I gave my mother enough trouble when I was born once. God only knows if I am born again. And I heard about these born-again people, and I seen some of them on TV with the big hair and screaming and craziness, and I was like, that's not for me. I'm a Jewish kid from a, from, from, from a Jewish family of Democrats. This isn't going to happen. Not doing this. But the guy said, we saw you raise your hand. If you can't stand here for the Lord, you won't be able to stand for him in the world. There's 500 people there. I recognize we're not going anywhere until I stand up. So I stand up. I meet the first, they meet with one of their counselors. They give me the first New Testament ever seen, a Brit Hadashah, Jewish, Jerusalem, New Covenant, Prophecy Edition, Little Bible. And my friend John in the car, he's like, I'm so happy. I prayed that I would be able to help lead one Jewish person to the Messiah. And, 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 but, and, I, and I prayed for you, but never in a million years that I think it was going to be you. I didn't know what I was more offended about, that he was praying behind my back, or he didn't think there was any chance that God could touch my life. I don't know what I was more offended by. Curiosity gets the best of me. I go home, I take the New Testament, hide it. God forbid my parents should find it, and I re but curiosity gets the best of me. I read it for the first time. I'm blown away how Jewish. I'm blown away by the prophecies. And what the Lord said to me in that encounter in heaven was a verse, some verses from the New Testament, which I had never read before, and I said, okay, he is the one whom Moses and the prophets spoke of. About a week later, I get a telephone call. I used to help feed homeless people in New York. A friend of mine who was homeless calls me, collect from NYU Medical Center, says, Jason, I'm in the hospital. I was sleeping outside. I got frostbite. I have gangrene from my knees down. They, they, they're going to amp. Doctors are telling me my legs have to be amputated. I am so scared. Would you come and see me? No, I just received the Lord. I had just read the Gospels for the first time. I had just read the book of Acts. What do I know? That's before I got a theological education, and I believe God can do what he says in his word. So I go right in that. <laughs> he healed. They healed. We can. So I go to the hospital. I lay hands on him. I say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have in the name of Yeshua. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. He got healed. He got saved, and he walked out of the hospital a week later. <laughs> Praise God. The Lord is so good, so good. 
So I knew for sure he was real. <laughs> and I knew I was called to serve him. Wound up going, getting all sorts of biblical, theological education, studied a number of places. About 10 years ago, moved to California. And I wind up going to a conference on healing. And because I had had this experience, but then I was in all these theological environments, educational environments, and I didn't know these guys, but one of them comes over to me, he lays his hands on me, and he gives me this dose of maybe some healing and transformation in the lives of people. And I'll share the rest of the story with you another time, but it was crazy, and we started to pray for people and saw all sorts of miracles and transformations go on, and we've been on this journey, and I felt like the Lord say to me, Jason, don't settle for a form of godliness that lacks power. You'll never impact the world. And I felt like the Lord say to me, Jason, you and many have settled for half an inheritance. Matthew says this. Well, Jesus says this in Matthew. He gives the parable. He says, what can a scribe who understands the kingdom of God be compared to? Like a householder that brings forth new and old treasures. The full inheritance is the new treasures and the old treasures coming together. That is the full revelation that leads to the ultimate transformation. And I felt like the Lord saying, Jason, you've settled for the old. You've settled for knowing the old, but there is a new, there is a power of healing and transformation and New Testament revelation. I mean, I read the New Testament, I said it, but there was a new level of of, of, of the spirit of God moving and healing coming. And he said, Jason, you settled for the old. I want you to understand the new. Many in the church have settled for the new, but they don't understand the old. So you need the roots, the Jewish roots, and the shoots to bring forth the fullness of the fruit that God has in this day and time. And I believe that's part of prophetically what God is doing in the world today. It's connected to a Smith Wigglesworth prophecy, but we're not going to go into that right now. But I believe that is part of what God is doing, connecting the old and the new, Gentile and Jew, because that is the kingdom of God. Listen, right? This is the Christmas season. How many of you are grateful for the birth of our Messiah? But here's the reality. There's four women in the genealogy of Yeshua, of Jesus, and guess what they all have in common? First of all, it was rare to include women in genealogies in the first century, but guess what they have in common? They are all Gentile women. Why is that significant? Because it took Gentile and Jew to birth the line of David, which is the line of the Messiah. And we are not going to birth the kingdom until Jew and Gentile, Jerusalem and Antioch, join, him, join in him to birth it. Jewish apostolic, Gentile apostolic, coming together, word and spirit, to birth the new thing. Because we're called to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And you all know in the kingdom is Jew and Gentile going up to the new Jerusalem to worship him. So if that's what heaven is, we need to, we need to, we need to reveal heaven and give people a sneak preview of it here and now. And that's part of our passion of what we do with fusion. Like, for example, it's, we want people to have a road to Emmaus experience. Jesus opened up the scriptures and showed how everything in it pointed to him. Listen, the first letter of the book of Genesis in Hebrew is Bereshit. It begins with a B. 
the last word of the book of Revelation, who knows what it is? Amen. It ends in the letter N. B and N in Hebrew spell the Hebrew word ben. Does anybody know what ben means? Son. From the first letter to the last letter, the scriptures point to the son. From beginning to end, it's all about him. And there is a rich revelation in the Hebrew scriptures that when we understand it, like on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened the scriptures and it says their hearts burned within them. As he opened up the scriptures and connected old and new. And that's what we are passionate about, making those connections. And I hope some of you will experience some of those connections here. Our ministry is called Fusion because we believe God wants to fuse old and new, Gentile and Jew, word and spirit together, old and young, rich and poor, to model the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. So I'm excited to be able to share with you here this evening from his word. And if you have the scriptures, you want to follow along, we are in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Now there were shepherds in the same region living out in the fields and guarding their flock at night. And suddenly the angel of Adonai, the angel of the Lord, stood before them, and the glory of Adonai, the Lord, shone all around them, and they were absolutely terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I proclaim to you good news, which shall be great joy to all people. A Savior is born to you today in the city of David, who is Messiah the Lord, and this is, and the sign to you is this, you will find an infant wrapped in strips of cloth, swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly a multitude of the heavenly armies appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, shalom to men of goodwill. And when the angels departed into the heavens, the shepherds were saying to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which Adonai has made known to us. So they turned, so they hurried off and found Miriam, that's Mary's Hebrew name, and Joseph, and the baby lying in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known to them the word that had been spoken to them concerning this child. And all those who heard were amazed at the things the shepherd told them. But Miriam treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all things they had heard and seen, just as they had been told. Now, how many of you guys have read that story once or twice in your life or have heard it read? But let me ask you a question. How many of you guys have ever asked yourself if an angel comes down from heaven and says, this is a sign, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger, don't you think that's significant for some reason? How many of you guys, though, have ever tried to wrestle with the text and say, why is that such a sign? Like, if I'm thinking about a sign from heaven, I'm thinking like you, the, the passage you read earlier from Isaiah 7, 14, God says through the prophet Isaiah, to give Ahaz a sign as high as heaven and as deep as Sheol, a baby will, a woman, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you'll name, his, you'll name him Emmanuel. That's a sign. A, a virgin conceives and bears his child. That's a sign. But a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger, what's so great about that? Why is that so significant? For as I hope that we're going to see this story in high definition tonight. <laughs> 
That's part of my passion, that you'll see it in high definition. So I want you to understand this. Why is it such a sign? What we need to understand is we need to look first at the shepherds that will give us a clue. How many times have you heard the shepherds were what type of men? What type? They were kind of lowly shepherds, right? Okay, they weren't lowly shepherds. The shepherds around Bethlehem were Levitical shepherds. They were Levite shepherds. Because the sacrifices raised in Bethlehem six miles from Jerusalem, the lambs that were born there were going to be offered either as burnt offerings in the house of God in the temple in Jerusalem. Because as you know, there has to be sacrifice in the Old Testament because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And the female, lamb, the female lambs would be offered as peace offerings. So these were Levitical shepherds trained in God's word, raising the animals that were central to the worship, the heart, and central to the worship of the, of, in the Hebrew scriptures of the Lord. And so, so many times we think that these were ordinary shepherds and that Messiah was born in some stable behind some Econo Lodge or Motel 6 in Bethlehem. I know you guys have Motel 6 here. We also saw a Super 8. Are they trying to be a little bit above Motel 6? I don't know. Like, this is just, it cracked me up. But let me tell you what. The picture of the manger is him being born in a, in a what? A what? Stable made out of what? Wood. Guys, he wasn't born in a wooden stable. There is no, there is very little buildable wood in the land of Israel. When they wanted to build the temple, they had to import the wood from where? Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. But there's a lot of stones in Israel. That's why they picked up stones to stone people. That's why David picked up stones to kill Goliath. It's a, there's a lot of stones and a lot of rocks. And what you have to understand is around Bethlehem to this day, there's still shepherds, nomads, herding their flocks to this day. And all around Bethlehem, there are caves. And these caves were used to bring the lambs into, the flocks into during the winter. And when it came time for these lambs to be born, they would bring them into these caves. And that is where these animals would be born in these caves that were kept in a state of ritual purity. So now, imagine this. These shepherds come into a cave. And by the way, the earliest of all the earliest Christian traditions says that Messiah was born in a cave in Bethlehem. Today it's believed the Church of the Nativity sits over it. That is the oldest Christian tradition going back to the fourth century. And when they were born in this cave, what they would do is they would take strips of linen and they would swaddle the lambs. Why? Because the lamb had to be what to be offered in the temple without what? Spot or blemish. Little lambs are clumsy. Caves are rocky with a lot of jagged edges. 
if the lamb was to fall and cut itself, it would no longer qualify. It is no longer perfect. It has a blemish. So when they're newborn, they would swaddle them and wrap them in these swaddling cloths, clothes to protect them. And hence the shepherds come in. And what do they see? They see a baby born in the same place that the Passover sacrifices are born swaddled like one of the lambs that was to be offered in the temple. And more than that, the primary purpose of the lambs born in Bethlehem were to be used as the Passover lambs offered in the temple. And they look at this child and they understand this is the Lamb of God born to take away the sins of the world. Come on. Does that add a little definition to the story? But there's something more. He's born in what city? Bethlehem. In Hebrew, can you say Beit Lechem? You got to get the ch without spitting on your neighbors. Beit Lechem. <laughs> so think about it for a moment. Hebrew is alphanumeric. What does that mean? You write letters with numbers. So if I want to say open your Bible to chapter 1, verse 1, I will say open up to Aleph, Aleph, because Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the Aleph, Bay. Aleph, Aleph, 1, 1. So every Hebrew word has a numerical value, and in the Bible, words, numerical value of words are significant, hence 666 in the book of Revelations. We're not going to go there, but just to give you an example. The numerical value of the word Bethlehem, Bethlehem, equals 490. Say 490. That's significant. The word nativity equals 490. When Peter comes to Jesus and he says, how many times do I have to forgive? Do I have to forgive up to seven times? So you only have to forgive three times. So Peter thought he was the man. He thought he was the Mac. He's like, I'll take the three times. I'll double it. I'll add one. Number of perfection, seven. See, I'm the rock. See how spiritual I am. How you like me now, Jesus? And Jesus is like, no. Not seven times, but what? Seventy times seven, which equals math scholars. So Bethlehem 490, Nativity 490, Forgiveness 490. But to understand this, we have to understand that so he connects forgiveness and 490 because 490 is also the value of the Hebrew word tamim. Can you say tamim? tamim. Which means to be perfect or complete. Because unless you learn to forgive, you can't be perfect or complete. Jesus was Tamim. Tamim, he was the only perfect and complete one born in Bethlehem. To, to the phrase, let your heart be perfect, is, equals 490 in Hebrew. But what's significant here is that Bethlehem means what in English? House of bread. Guys, bread is connected to what? To forgiveness. Give us this day our, and what's the next line? Forgive us of our what? Trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When the Lord gives his life for us at the Last Supper, which by the way was a Passover Seder, 
And the thing you eat at the Passover Seder is the matzah, the unleavened bread. He blessed it, he broke it, the bread. This is my body broken for you for forgiveness. Bread and forgiveness are connected. Think about spiritually the significance of this. Can man live without bread? No, it's, it's like symbolic of food and sustenance. Just like man cannot live without bread, relationally, emotionally, and spiritually, we can't live without the bread of forgiveness. When, someone, when we don't forgive, it's like withholding bread from a starving person and telling them to go die. There's more. 490, the most significant place, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's meditating on Israel's 70 years of exile according to the Jeremiah prophecy. Angel comes, it's not 70 years of exile, 70 years, 70 times 7, 490 years until the kingdom comes in its fullness. So the, Daniel 9 is kingdom coming in its fullness, 490 until everything is fulfilled. Why 490 in Daniel, the revelation to all the kingdom comes? Because Israel was in exile because they neglected the sabbatical year. You guys know what the sabbatical year is? The Ten Commandments says every seventh day is to be a Sabbath, a day of rest and worship and fellowship and connection to God and family. But in the same way, every seventh year, there was to be a rest for the land. For a whole year, though, it was an ag agricultural society. Not farming when you're a farmer for a year is really trust in the Lord. But in the, in the sabbatical year, every seventh year, not only were you not to work the land, but every indentured servant, slave, was to go free. What's the significant? Sin is a debt. When we forgive someone, we're giving them a sabbatical, a jubilee, saying your debts are canceled and you are free. But also what's maybe even more significant is that we said in the seventh year, you don't do what with the land? You don't work the land. Listen, what does that mean? You don't till the land. That means part of forgiveness is when you forgive someone, you don't keep digging up the past. The land lies fallow. Forgiveness means letting it lie fallow and letting it go. Guys, we're in a season, a holiday season, where this, a lot of things are stirred up for us in this season, right? We have to see people we maybe have had conflict with, that we've had issues with, that have caused us pain. And so it's so important for us to understand this message of forgiveness at this season. I had this dream, and in this dream, I, I was in an airport, and I go to get my tickets. I get called back to the ticket counter. They said, let me see your tickets. They take my tickets. They rip it up in my face. They print out new tickets. I look at it, and I'm like, Thank you, God, it's an upgrade to first class. Let me tell you, once you fly first class, it's hard to go back to steerage, especially on international flights. I'm so, it's like, thank you, God, I'm walking to the plane, and I realize my Toomey Roller briefcase is gone. Can't find it anywhere. I'm like, Lord, thank you for the upgrade, but did you have to take my Toomey Roller briefcase? And you know what the Lord said to me? He said to me, Jason, if you want the upgrade, you can't have the upgrade if you are holding on to baggage from the past season. 
You can't hold on to the baggage and step into the upgrade. You can't hold on to the past and fully step into the future. Guys, all of us have some baggage. And tonight, the Lord is saying, he wants to bring you freedom, but you have to be willing to let go of some things. Some hurts, some offenses, some disappointments. Turn to someone and say, don't hold on to the baggage from the past season. <laughs> hey, turn to someone and say, hey, it's time for your upgrade. Guys, it is time for your upgrade, but, and, and, and this is the point, he was born as the Passover lamb to bring our forgiveness and freedom. That means he released us from our past. We have to be willing to release others as well. How can we celebrate the birth of the Passover lamb and hold bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart? And by the way, forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. I just want to be clear about that. If someone's hurt you or done you wrong or is abusive to you, it doesn't mean you have to go be friends with them again. Forgiveness is not intellective. It is a requirement, but it's not just for the other person. It's also for you because you remain chained to the person that you have not forgiven. Forgiveness is the key that loses you. So God wants to bring this forgiveness, He wants to, which only comes with the upgrade, if your upgrade comes with letting go. But then we see in another significant part of him being born and him being swaddled is when a baby was born, it was traditional. Every legitimate child who had a father that loved him, when he was born, would not only cut the umbilical cord, but he would take salt water water that was very salty and washed down the, his child because remember in the first century they didn't have sterile environments. Salt kills bacteria and so he'd wash down the baby and salt the baby and it was symbolic of many things. Salt represented truth and honesty. It would say I'm salting my child to, to raise him in truth and honesty and integrity but even more significant, Leviticus 2.3 says this, every offering of your grain shall be seasoned with salt. Listen, you can offer no sacrifices unless you put salt on top of them. Jesus was the sacrifice. He also had to be salted. He salted like the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. But of course there's more. The more of it is, is that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Why does he have to be born in this city? Who's from this city? King David. He's a descendant of David. He's born in this city, and God makes an eternal covenant with David. Second Chronicles 13, 5, it says this. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave kingship over Israel to David and his descendants? And how does he do it? David and his descendants forever. By what? By a salt covenant. God makes a salt covenant with David, 
And that's why kingship will forever be with David. And here is the son of David in the city of David with salt on him, not only as a sacrifice, but symbolizing this is the king from the line of David whom God made a salt covenant with. But what you have to understand, salt is symbolic in the Middle East of friendship. When you share salt with someone, it's like you're entering into a deep covenant relationship with one another. There's this expression in the Middle East that says, there is salt between us. It's symbolic of deep friendship and deep relationship. Jesus had to be salted in addition to what we said already is because he came so that we might not be servants or slaves, but we might be what? Friends of God. The salting is symbolic that he came to bring a new covenant. Listen, he doesn't want a transactional relationship with you. That's religion. If you do this, then I'll bless you. If you do this, you'll be pleasing to me. If you do these things, then maybe you'll get to heaven. No, listen, he makes a covenant and he says, it's not about what you do, for, it's about who you are in relationship to me. That's what it's about. It's about relationship. He's saying, I've come to bring the salt that you might have deep friendship with me, that as many as believe that you might become the children of God. One morning I was getting ready, and the Lord said to me, Jason, you're my favorite son. I said, thank you, God, I'm your favorite son. Wow, you know how good that is to hear? That's good. And he says, when you go out there and speak, I want you to tell people, Jason, you're my favorite son. I was like, Lord, I, I can't do that. People are gonna pick up stones to stone me when I tell them I am your favorite. Like you're looking at me right now. Where's he going with this? He said to me, Jason, I'm a father and you're a father, but I'm not a father like you're a father. I'm the infinite father. And therefore, I can have an infinite number of number one sons and daughters. He said, the reason why you don't want to say you're my favorite son is not because you're scared of what, you're gonna, what people are going to think, because you say lots of things that, that tick people off. <laughs> like he's not born in a manger, and that's only a little thing. He said, but you don't want to say it because you don't really believe that I could love you enough and care for you enough and believe in you enough that you could be my number one son. I sent my son so that you could become my number one son, my favorite. Friends, you might know your children of God, but how many of us struggle to really believe that we are accepted and loved as his number one son? How many of those voices do we have going on in our head that tells us every fault in us, every flaw that was within us that makes us think that, man, maybe we'll get into heaven, maybe I'm a child, but I am not really worthy, and we're living under that voice of condemnation, and I want you to turn to someone and say, you're his number one. <laughs> Guys, say it like you mean it, you're his number one. Guys, turn to someone and say, you're his favorite. Now, listen, this is harder. Turn to someone and say, I'm his favorite. Guys, you better believe you are his favorite. 
Guys, for some of you will say it in an hour now, you won't be believing it. You better say it every day until it becomes a reality. Friends, if we can't know that we're his number one, that he loves us, we're never gonna do great things for God. That is our identity in him. Listen, he's born, he's wrapped in these swaddling claws. The, the Levitical shepherds come and see him. They recognize Lamb of God, take away the sin of the world. But listen, I don't believe he is swaddled in ordinary cloth. That would be too simple. See, what you have to understand is that when the priestly garments became too worn for use, because they had been used in the presence of God, the house of God, when something is whole, you can't just throw it in the garbage. God doesn't throw things out, he repurposes them. So these clothing, they take the garments of the priest and they repurpose them. And what was the primary purpose that they are repurposed for? They were cut into strips and they were used to make the wicks of the seven branch candelabra, the menorah in the temple that was symbolic of God's eternal presence illuminating his people like the presence of God in the burning bush. So the priests come, the Levitical shepherds come, they see him wrapped like the Passover lamb in the place where the lambs are born, and they see him wrapped in priestly garments, and they understand he is the light of the world. Where did they get the garments? From the house of David, not Levites. Where did they get the Who was Mary's cousin? What was her name? And where was her husband when he got a revelation that an angel comes to him and say, you are going to have a child? Where was he? In the holy place where the seven branch candelabra was lit. And when Mary walks into Elizabeth and Zechariah's home six months after she conceived, the baby John leaps within her womb and she says, Blessed is the fruit of your womb, and understand she is pregnant with the Messiah, who was not only going to be a king, was also going to be a prophet, but was also going to be a priest. And so I believe he gave Mary some of his worn priestly garments to wrap him in, and that is what he is swaddled in. So when they see this descendant of David wrapped in priestly clothes, they understand that he is the high priest, that he is the lamb, and that he is the light of the world with the strips that make the wicks of the menorah in the temple. Come on. Listen. The oldest symbol of the Jewish people is that seven-branch menorah. Not just among the Jewish people, but also Rome, carrying them into exile, the seven-branch candelabra on the Ark of Titus. Christmas happens in December, and we're not going to get into when he was born, but listen. <laughs> then you'll really stone me. But if he was born or conceived at this time, Christmas usually falls at the same time as Hanukkah. And the message of Hanukkah is they go into the temple, they rededicate the house of God where a pagan king offered a sacrifice, and there's only enough oil to keep the seven-branch candelabra lit for one day, but they have the faith to light anyway. And the oil is only enough for one night, kosher oil, purified oil, but it lasts for seven, eight days in total. And Hanukkah celebrates the miracle of the menorah, which connects back to the verse, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
which ties back to Zechariah when he's in the temple being told by the angel that him and his wife Elizabeth are going to bear a son. He's like, how am I going to bear a child in old age? And he laughs at the promise of God instead of laughing with the promise of God. Friends, turn to someone and say, don't laugh at the promise, laugh with the promise. Guys, God makes outrageous promises. Outrageous. A virgin will conceive. Oil gets multiplied for eight days. God, guys, if God's given you some outrageous promises, don't doubt the promises. Don't doubt the promises. God says Abraham was struggling to believe, and just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, the angel says to him, is anything too difficult for God? Turn to someone and say, is anything too difficult for God? <laughs> Guys, Christmas and Hanukkah happens usually in the Hebrew month of Kislev. I just want to say this. Friends, prophetically on the Hebrew calendar, this year is 5779. Say 79. 70 is the number of the eyes. This is a decade to go from hearing the promises of God to seeing them come to pass. Turn to someone and say, you're going from hearing to seeing the promises come to pass. 70 is the eyes, the decade. But do you know what nine is? Nine is in the shape, the letter nine is the Hebrew letter tet. Tet is in the shape of a womb. How long is a full pregnancy? It is nine months. Friends, this is a season to birth promise and potential in our lives. Turn, turn to someone and say, you're going to birth your promise in this season. You're going to birth your potential in this season. Turn to someone and say, it's time to go from barrenness to birthing. Barrenness to birthing. Guys, some of you are, are barren, literally, babies coming. Some of you are barren spiritually, you don't, you've been, you, or you've been pregnant for a while. It's time to birth that baby already, okay? And listen, no more aborted babies. The promise is not going to be aborted. No more aborted babies. Say that, no more aborted babies. But the letter, the letter Teth, the nine, also stands for the word Tov. Say Tov which means good, this is a year of the good. This is a year to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. So listen, guys, no ugly babies. There are a lot of ugly babies looking out, out there that look like they've been hit with the ugly stick because it's, people try to birth it in their own flesh in their own strength and not by the spirit of the power of God. So good, beautiful babies being birthed from you. No, say no ugly babies. Only beautiful babies. But the good news is the story of Christmas, the birth of the Messiah, the story of Hanukkah, isn't just about the promises coming to pass. It's just not about winning, but it's about winning from a place of weakness. It's about winning from a place of weakness against all odds in the face 
of the impossible. God wants us to learn not just to win from a place of strength, but turn to someone and say, you can win from a place of weakness. Yeah, you will win from a place of weakness. Because it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not of you, so that no one may boast. And the last thing I want to say is, we get ready to close. Listen, the birth of the Messiah in that, in that cave. Well, let me just say, listen, Messiah was the light of the world, but guess what he says? Not only is he the light, he says you are the light. At Hanukkah, we have to place the, the, the nine-branch candelabra in the window to proclaim publicly, publicize the miracle. You're to be the light to the world. And what happens? The shepherds are the first evangelists. They go and tell everyone what they had seen and heard. Listen, friends, if your life has been encountered, you've been touched by God here, you need to go and tell some people what God is doing. Be the light. Show them what the Lord's done right for you. But to birth the promise, listen, you will remain barren if you don't believe. The birth of the Messiah is the birth of faith, it's the birth of hope, and it's the birth of love. Of God in flesh and blood. God wants to give you faith for the impossible. He wants you to believe and not to doubt. He doesn't want to doubt the dreams. Love to talk more about that. But that faith is meant to lead to hope. And you know what hope is? Hope is the belief that your future is gonna be better than your past. Turn to someone and say, your future is gonna be better than your past. Faith is the evidence of things what? Hope for. The substance of things not yet seen. God wants to increase your hope in this season. And he wants you to bring the light of hope to the world. That your future is going to be better than your past. It doesn't matter where you come from. It's going to be better. You are not bound by your past. Where you come from doesn't matter. It is where you're going in him. And ultimately, part of the reason why God is blessing this house is because you have that hope. See, listen, one of the things you have to understand about the Christmas story, it's easy to look at the Christmas story and the, and, and the time in which they were born into there were the, imagine being nine months pregnant from a poor family and having to go 90 miles to go take a census so that a greedy Roman megalomaniac egotistical king could have more money to live his lavish lifestyle to pay his soldiers to oppress you and your people and you're nine months pregnant and you have to do this. You seem like you're just a pawn in the game of these powerful world-dominating leaders, but the reality is it's only because this king wanted to take a census at this time that Mary and Joseph had to go, not by choice, to Bethlehem, nine months pregnant, 
so that the prophecy spoken hundreds of years earlier might be fulfilled, that the Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too small to be among the clans of Judah, one will go forth for you to be a ruler for me in Israel, whose days were from long ago, from the days of eternity. It was fulfilled because of a greedy king made a decision that seemed worldly, but it set the plan of God in place to be fulfilled, right? Why is that important? Because hope is rooted in the fact that God is in control. God is in control. If you don't know God is in control, you will never have hope. Listen, God has seen everything that has happened to you, everything that is happening to you, and everything that will happen to you, and even if it's not his will to have some of those tough things happen to you, trust me, God will use it all for good for you to become the person he's called you to be, for you to get to the place to be positioned for the promotion that he has for you, just like Joseph went through the pits and the prisons to get to the palace. God is works the details in the history of the world, in your life, in my life, in the life of the scriptures, so that his promise might be fulfilled. That's why our future is better in the past, because God is in control, and his hand is there. And even when you can't see the hand of God, trust the heart of God. Turn to someone and say, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. Turn to someone and say, God is in control. Turn and say, God's got you. And ultimately, it comes down to this. Guys, the blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? That Yeshua, Jesus, is going to return. And in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. And all who have this hope purify themselves. Listen, there was a family, a husband and a wife, they loved each other very much. Ten years, they couldn't have children. The husband says, I love you, but no children, no future. Jewish law says, I can divorce you. I want a divorce. His wife is heartbroken. They go to the rabbi to sign the divorce contract called the get. The rabbi says, I'll only do it one condition. First, you guys celebrate the end of your marriage like you celebrated when you came into your marriage. Have a feast. They go, they have a feast. The wife prepares an elaborate meal. They're dining. The husband drinks a little too much. He says, listen, I love you. It breaks my heart to do this, but I feel like I have to do this. He goes, who's going to continue my line, my family? But listen, when you leave here tonight, take with you whatever is most valuable and precious in your sight. He drinks too much in, in Yiddish. That's shikr. He gets a little shikr. He wakes up the next morning. He doesn't realize where he is. He, 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 his wife comes in. He says, where am I? She says, you're in my father's house. He said, what am I doing in your father's house? You said, we agreed we're going to part ways. She said, listen, you told me that I could look around of all the things that we own. You said I could take with me whatever was most precious in my sight. And I looked at everything and you are the most precious thing to me. And the husband begins to break down and cry. And he says, I'm a fool. I'll love you and stay with you if we never have children. They go back and tell the rabbi, that's what he hoped would happen, that he, he blesses them. Nine months later, they have a baby boy. And the rabbis say this. If a husband who's ready to leave his wife says, you're the most precious thing, and he says, I'll come with you. 
and return with you and stay with you, how much more if each one of us cried out to the Lord, the Messiah, and said, you are the most precious. You are the most valuable thing to me. If all his people cried that out, wouldn't he surely send the Messiah and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven right now? Friends, we, we, we value the baby in the manger, but do we long for him to return as much as we longed and valued his coming? I'll say this one verse. Paul says, there is, I've, run the good ra- I've, I've run the good race, I've fought the good fight. There is treasure laid up for me in heaven. My life is poured out like a drink offering, but not only for me, but all those who have what? Longed for my appearing. Christmas doesn't remind us that Jesus was born. Christmas is meant to birth a longing in our heart that he will come again, that he is the most precious thing, and there is a power to change the world, to transform lives, to be a light, to be forgiven, to be set free, and to bring healing and wholeness to the world because he is the Lamb of God that changes everything. Amen? Amen.